I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about the reauthorization of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, FISA, Section 702, we have with us a very special guest, Josh Geltzer, who is the Deputy Assistant to the President and Deputy Homeland Security Advisor at the National Security Council at the White House. He's been there since 2021. Josh, welcome to Truth of the Matter. Thank you so much, Andrew. Grateful for the invitation. So I want to ask you, Josh, what is FISA Section 702? Let's start with that. It's a perfect place to start. And let me give you a one-sentence answer and then a somewhat longer answer with some history and context. The one-sentence answer is that 702 is a statutory authority in which Congress established a court-supervised regime that allows the intelligence community to work with U.S.-based service providers to collect communications of non-U.S. persons located overseas. That's one sentence, but there's a lot in that sentence. So let me offer some history and context, including defining it by where it came from and what it's not. Traditionally, collecting information from non-US persons, non-Americans, who are not located in the United States, has been done under an executive order. It's executive order 12333. And that's in part because non-US persons located abroad lack Fourth Amendment protections. They lack constitutional protections. And so there's been a, a, a regimen that allows a great deal of latitude in collecting foreign intelligence information involving their communications. Meanwhile, kind of at the other end of the spectrum, there was a law passed in the, in the late 70s, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA, that focused on surveillance activities in the United States. And for that, a particular court order about a particular target of collection had to be sought from the, the FISA court. Now, technology changed, and non-U.S. persons located abroad started using U.S.-based communications technology. They started using U.S. companies' email, for example. And so it raised the question, what should happen if the intelligence community wants information from non-U.S. persons located abroad using U.S.-based service providers? And here, Congress struck a compromise. They said, we, the executive branch, need to go to the FISA court, but not for every particular target. Because remember, these are targets that lack constitutional protection under the Fourth Amendment. Instead, you can go to the FISA court and get generalized orders on the sorts of topics you want to collect from these non-US persons located abroad, and then you can work with the communications companies on particular targets of collection. That is the law known as FISA 702. Okay, so let's discuss what it actually allows the government to do, and what, what's the value in this reauthorization? So 702 is essential to the intelligence community's production, analysis, and informing of those of us who, who are policymakers. Originally, it was conceived of, in significant part, as a counterterrorism authority. It emerged in the post-9-11 years, and it has remained critical for our counterterrorism work. Indeed, we have been able to say publicly that Section 702 contributed to the successful operation almost exactly a year ago, as, as we talk now, Andrew, to take off the battlefield the world's most wanted terrorist, Ayman al-Zawahiri, the, the global head of al-Qaeda. So it remains essential for counterterrorism. 
but it has become something much more than that. It has helped uncover gruesome atrocities committed by Russia in Ukraine, including the murder of non-combatants there and the forced relocation of children from Russian-occupied Ukraine. Section 702 acquired information have uh, informed our understanding of Chinese origins of a chemical used to synthesize fentanyl, which, as you know, Andrew, continues to, to wreak havoc in American communities. It helps us identify spies in our midst. It helps us inform private U.S. companies about ransomware threats or indeed ransomware attacks against their cyber infrastructure. So it is both something that continues to contribute to the counterterrorism mission, but is also central to how we understand and then defend against Russian, Chinese, cyber, and other threats. And Josh, I want to ask you, because, you know, Americans in this digital age, as you mentioned, are constantly thinking about their privacy. They're constantly worried. Some are worried about surveillance. What are some of the guardrails within FISA Section 702 to protect from unnecessary or unethical use of targeted surveillance? Yeah, these guardrails are, are critical. So the, the, the first and perhaps most important is that it is restricted to being used to target the communications of non-U.S. persons located abroad. And indeed, these particular targets must be targets who are expected to have foreign intelligence value. It's not just any and all non-U.S. persons located abroad. It's those for whom there's a reasonable basis to, to believe that the intelligence community has something to learn of foreign intelligence value from them. And what's more, entrenched in the law itself is a prohibition on so-called reverse targeting. You can't do that just to try to collect against a U.S. person that you think that non-U.S. person abroad might be in communication with. What's more, each time, each year, that the FISA court approves the materials on 702 brought to it by the executive branch, it approves restrictions on how that information, how information collected under 702 is retained, meaning held, how it is disseminated within the executive branch, and how it is queried, how that which has already been lawfully collected is searched. And indeed, that information is pretty carefully allocated even within the executive branch. And, and most notably, perhaps, on, on that score, the FBI, which has a homeland-focused mission protecting Americans in the homeland from threats here and coming from abroad, receives less than 4% of the information collected under 702 uh, in a deliberate desire to ensure that it has what it needs as part of its homeland-focused investigatory and intelligence work, but at the same time, doesn't have the, the full scope of information, some of which can be better utilized by our foreign-focused parts of the intelligence community, like the National Security Agency, for example. Okay, so if it is reauthorized, as the Biden administration hopes it will be, how strict are the requirements going to be to warrant surveillance? So we think that we already start with a, a regime that strikes an important balance in enabling critical intelligence collection while at the same time imposing oversight in various forms. That oversight happens within the executive branch. So lawyers from, for example, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the Department of Justice, play critical roles in overseeing the actual implementation of this. So does the FISA court. Those are Article Three federal judges. And so does Congress in the form of the intelligence committees. At the same time, we have been very candid about the fact 
that there have been compliance errors in the past, overwhelmingly not intentional, but nonetheless mistakes made in which the very carefully crafted rules for how this information, 702 collected information, can be queried, can be organized and looked at, have not always been followed. That should never happen. And FBI in particular instituted in 2021, and indeed has instituted further in recent months, efforts to ensure that that does not happen again. Those efforts include things like requiring those at FBI who intend to search 702 collected information to affirmatively opt in. In other words, part of the problem before was agents might search 702 collected information without intending to do so, and therefore without a search that necessarily met those standards. That can't happen anymore because you need to opt in, click in quite literally in the system if, if you want to search 702 collected information. It also, the, the, these reforms also include a requirement that FBI attorneys approve certain 702 searches. And what's more, that particularly sensitive searches go all the way to the deputy director of the FBI for approval before they can proceed. So we've already seen the effect of these reforms. We've seen the number of US person queries, as they're called, reduced dramatically thanks to the 2021 reforms. And as Americans saw in, in the recent testimony by a number of senior executive branch officials before the Senate Judiciary Committee, we think those reforms are a very useful starting point for statutory changes that could be made as part of this reauthorization process and could take what we think are valuable policy steps and entrench them in, in the U.S. code, entrench them in statute so that they are far, far harder to, to change in the future. So I want to get to the Senate Judiciary Committee in a minute. But before I do, I, I want to ask, can Section 702, well, let's just start with this. National security is a very broad topic, right? Can Section 702 be used to gather intelligence related to any issue pertaining to national security? And, and how do you define national security? Yeah, so the, the statute itself, the provision of federal law, does require that particular targets be anticipated to have foreign intelligence value. But it also requires that some classified certifications go to the FISA court as to the general categories for which this authority is to be used. And those get relooked every year, both by the executive branch and then by the FISA court itself. And you know, the, the breadth of the value of 702 speaks to the breadth of bad actors who want the benefits of relying on US technologies. Essentially, they want to have it both ways. They want to be able to utilize the extremely reliable, extremely user-friendly, extremely appealing way in which US companies have generated email and other communication services. And if in the absence of 702, to essentially try to, to make it very hard for us to see what sort of threats might be emerging from their use of those technologies. And so that is in part why you see us working hard to declassify examples in the course of this reauthorization push that speak to the breadth of the ways in which 702 does contribute to intelligence collection on national security. And as I mentioned before, there has been counterterrorism at the heart of previous reauthorization discussions, and it's still there. But in a world in which we are concerned about Russia, concerned about China, concerned about cyber threats, concerned about threats to critical infrastructure here in the US, concerned about other things like treaty compliance. 
All of these, our, our ability to make good on all of these, ranging from protecting our own critical infrastructure systems to ensuring that international norms embodied in international treaties are actually upheld. All of this now relies in significant part on collection under 702. So Josh, you mentioned a lot of the issues that the authorization can be useful for, but tell us some, without you know, obviously going into classified things, what are some of the uses that you see going forward? CT has been a bipartisan thing since 9-11. What are some of the other things that can be used effectively for in this new age? Yeah, so let me start, first of all, with something that, that is also bipartisan at this point, and frankly, of, of concern to American communities, which is the threat posed by drugs, fentanyl, meth, and a, and a wide range of drugs that, in terms of sheer numbers, are, calling, are causing lethalities in American communities at a scale that dramatically outpaces terrorist attacks or, or, or other things as, as awful as those are. And I mentioned before that Section 702 acquired information have provided insights informing our understanding of Chinese origins of a chemical used to synthesize fentanyl. 702 acquired information has informed our understanding of foreign actors' illicit plans to smuggle methamphetamine across the U.S. border. 702 information has informed our understanding of the quantities and potency of drugs, including fentanyl, destined for illegal transfer to the United States, as well as specific smuggling techniques used to avoid detection. And 702 acquired information has informed us about a foreign narcotics trafficker's purchase of a vast quantity of pills intended for transfer to the United States. Again, that's just a snapshot of the ways in which 702 lights up for us critical fentanyl, meth, and, and drug-related foreign bad actors and the threats they pose. I would also emphasize here proliferation challenges, which continue to worry us. Section 702 acquired information related to sanctioned foreign adversaries has been used in U.S. government efforts to stop weapons of mass destruction components from reaching foreign actors. I would also point here to economic value of 702 insights. So 702 has identified key economic security risks, including strategic malign investment by foreign actors in certain U.S. companies. And I mentioned briefly, but I'll emphasize it here, the, the fact that treaty compliance relies on 702. And, and our Assistant Secretary of State, Brett Holmgren, who runs the intelligence component, gave remarks at CSIS recently in which he focused on the fact that the State Department, which is not itself an operator of 702, it doesn't task particular uh, targets, nonetheless is a huge beneficiary of it, like so many parts of our government, because the information that the Secretary relies on and that other parts of the State Department rely on to engage in work like treaty compliance, to inform the Secretary in diplomatic negotiations, all of that depends heavily at this point on 702. So now I want to get to the Senate Judiciary Committee. Chairman, of course, is Senator Dick Durbin, Democrat of Illinois. He's chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And at this hearing we were talking about, he said, quote, I will only support the reauthorization of Section 702 if there are significant, significant reforms. And that means, first and foremost, addressing the warrantless surveillance of Americans in violation of the Fourth Amendment. So... Where is that coming from? It doesn't, there's bipartisan concern. The ranking member, Lindsey Graham, is voicing some of the similar things, saying there's not just being lazy, getting around the law, abuses need to stop. What's that all about? 
So look, fundamentally, we think that 702 is really a testament to excellent congressional handiwork. It is, it is a statutory scheme that strikes a balance that we think is, is admirable and indeed provides great value. But we've also been very candid, including throughout this reauthorization push, that the implementation of 702 has had its missteps, it's had its errors. And you don't hear any defense from, from this administration about compliance errors of the past. What you do hear a defense of are the steps we've taken to prevent their reoccurrence in the future. And you heard that in the, in, in the answers given at that Judiciary Committee hearing. And we think it's important for Congress and for Americans to understand that the 702 that would be reauthorized this time, we think should include steps that make it a better, stronger 702 than the one that, that has even been reauthorized in the past. And we think the starting point for that really are the compliance improvements made by DOJ, very much including FBI, in part because we know their value. We've seen their impact. They've had time, especially the 2021 reforms, to show that if there is an opt-in requirement, a proactive search of 702 collective, collected information required of FBI officials, if there's attorney approval required, if there's deputy director of FBI approval required for the most sensitive of queries of the 702 database, that it reduces the, the, the risk of, of compliance error. And part of this push has been making clear the value of this, which, uh, which we, you and I have been talking about, Andrew, but part of it has been indicating that we know there are those on the Hill who want to talk about the ways to strengthen this further and to reduce the possibility or risk of compliance errors in the future. And that's a conversation we've been having with those on the Hill, both in settings like that hearing and elsewhere, and that we're keen to continue having so that we are not only reauthorizing a, a critical provision, but really boosting Americans' confidence in how we use it. And so you believe these consultations with Congress are really going to strengthen the bill and help get it, get it reauthorized, correct? Look, that, that's our responsibility is to work with, with Congress to find a way to reauthorize this in a way that maintains its full efficacy. And, and here I will say that there are proposals out there for reforms that we do not think would maintain the full efficacy of this program. And the most notable of these is the notion that a, a so-called warrant uh, approved by the FISA court should be required for searches uh, involving 702 collected information when that query has something like a phone number related to a U.S. person. The reason I say a so-called warrant is it's not really a warrant in the first place. We're talking here about what one does with information already lawfully collected. There's a pretty clear set of pieces of advice, urgings on what to do with such information that has come from blue ribbon commissions like the 9-11 Commission, like the Webster Commission that was uh, formed after the, the Fort Hood shooting. And consistently they have said that we as an executive branch need to make better, fuller use of that information already in our holdings to ensure that we are connecting the dots, so to speak. We are not allowing threats that we actually have insight into based on information we're holding uh, to evade us because we're not looking and we're not putting those pieces together. That is what we try to do when we, when we look in 702 collected information and we organize it in a way that is most useful for us. And often, when information related to a U.S. person, which can actually be a, a person or can be a company, is used to search 702 holdings, it's because that person is actually the victim or potential victim of a national security harm. Imagine foreign actors trying to recruit Americans as spies. 
Imagine U.S. companies that are the victims or potential victims of ransomware or other cyber intrusions. Those are things that are very high on what we'd like to know to protect the country and very high on the list of priorities that if there's a non-U.S. person located abroad talking to Americans because they're trying to recruit them as spies or because they've, they're, 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 they are already spies and running them as assets, that's critical information for us to discern. But we, we think that a step that would have us actually go to the FISA court before every one of those and make a case that somehow that meets some threshold would be impractical. It would not even meet the threshold in, in many cases if the, if the threshold is that the, the person themselves is a foreign power or an agent of a foreign power, because these are often victims of foreign powers or agents of foreign powers. And it would just take too long. We would miss things. We would lose out on the chance to mitigate these harms. So I want to be clear that we are committed to having conversations with Congress about reforms that would preserve the full efficacy of this vital authority. But at the same time, there are some reforms that have been floated that we think reduce the efficacy. And we don't think that they're a responsible way to reauthorize the statutory provision. Josh, thanks very much for this really incredible inside look at this process and about the reauthorization. I think we're all a lot smarter for having listened to you on this issue. Thanks so much. Thank you, Andrew. I'm grateful for the opportunity. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 